0: Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focused on security policy and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own. All of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country, and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. As always, quick housekeeping before we get started. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with anybody you think might get something out of it. And if you're interested in joining the email list to get a ping when an episode drops and also to have a better way than Elon Musk's Twitter to reach out directly to me, send me an email at oktalkspodcast at gmail.com. So here comes another episode in which there really is no clearer narrative flowing through it except mess and chaos. Later in the episode, I'm going to have a look at some of the domestic political chaos in the U.S. since the last two episodes have looked outside, but the first chunk of this episode, I'm going to pick up on a number of loose ends uh, from episode 54 about the violence in the Middle East. So Here, in no particular order, are some of the things that have happened in the mounting conflict sparked by Hamas's terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians on October 7th. One thing that happened over the past week or so is that Israel did what I think was a really stupid and unnecessarily cruel thing and cut off the water supply to the Gaza Strip, and I believe also the electricity. Besides the fact that even though, yes, one could argue, hey, Israel has basically been providing water and power for free to a nascent enemy this whole time, maybe that wasn't necessarily their job to begin with. Although, yes, one could make that argument, and some are, it really does seem immoral to cut off the water supply. I mean... Really, the first victims of this are going to be civilians. I mean, just look at what's happened since Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in 2007. Billions of dollars in international aid have gone into the Gaza Strip to try to build infrastructure, and yet clearly none of it has reached individual Palestinian civilians because Hamas has just taken that aid and used it to build weapons. So Israel cutting off water and power here. I mean, obviously Hamas is just going to hoard what's left at a severe cost to the civilians in Gaza. As far as I can tell, this move serves no real tactical purpose. Like I think the rationale was, we'll give you this back when you give us back our hostages, which is kind of understandable, but I don't think it'll work. It also comes at a very heavy strategic cost in terms of Israel's image. And this is going to be something that I think comes up again in this episode, given other news that's developed over the last week. But the reality is that Israel is in a PR war here. Besides my personal belief that this was bad and more should be done to avoid hurting Palestinian civilians, From a purely practical standpoint, doing things that look unnecessarily cruel to civilians is going to have a huge strategic cost. Now, follow-up, Israel did actually turn the water back on, like 24 hours later. But in another example of the coverage of this conflict being not very good, the news that they turned the water back on didn't get nearly the same fanfare or attention as them having initially cut it off. Which makes this rather a strategic blunder as far as I can see. Picking up on another loose thread from episode 54, I'd speculated that part of the reason that Hamas might have launched their attack on Israeli civilians when they did was to derail progress toward normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which, well, kinda looks like it worked. AFP is reporting that the Saudis have paused normalization talks, which seems pretty stupid to me, unless that is Saudi Arabia is cool sending a message to potential terrorists that they will do what you want if you kill a bunch of civilians which, well, you know, steadfast protection of human rights have never exactly been Saudi Arabia's north star, and that country's done more to promote terrorism around the world than any other except maybe Iran. But I thought they were supposed to be out of that business now. So, yeah, this seems like a pretty weird move to me. Another thing that's happened since the last episode I put out on this is that Israel gave a very public notice calling on civilians in northern Gaza to try to move south within 24 hours, presumably in advance of a potential ground invasion. Now, let's just stipulate here that this this is absolutely horrible for the individual civilians in question. Like, not to be too flip about it, but, you know, moving sucks, even at the best of times. And being told, basically, hi, you need to get your family ready to leave your home within a day, or you're going to be in even greater danger than you already are, and there's a very real chance that your house might be destroyed when you get back. That's just a tragedy on an individual level, and I wish to God that there weren't so many individual people in this horrible position, many of whom are kids, who obviously aren't guilty of anything other than being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Zooming out from the sort of individual tragedies here, I could be wrong, but... I don't believe that this is actually always a courtesy that a country invading a territory extends to the civilians in the area, and it would seem to demonstrate pretty clearly that although Israel is not going to be deterred from going after Hamas by Hamas using civilians as human shields, a war crime for the record, Israel's hope is to avoid civilian casualties. That's what this indicates to me anyway. But this move to ask people to evacuate North Gaza was largely derided. I mean, okay, some of the coverage of it was just like neutrally mentioned it, but others sort of sneered at it or channeled a few NGOs that were just like, oh my God, how ridiculous, how could you even say or expect that? And like, well, this brings me back to something that I asked at episode 54, which is basically, yes, on the one hand, like, yes, it's an insane situation to basically tell several hundred thousand people, hi, we need you to move now. But on the other hand, if Israel's going to put boots on the ground in Gaza to actively go after Hamas, presumably instead of just using air power, Well, what should Israel do instead of giving warning to civilians that they expect fighting in a certain area and to please seek shelter away from the area that they're specifying? Like, I don't see a way that Israel can just leave Hamas in power in the Gaza Strip after what just happened. Again, nobody seriously asked the US not to go after Al-Qaeda after 9-11, and this attack for Israel was a lot worse than 9-11 was for the US. Also, I want to just point out, allowing Hamas to remain in power in the Gaza Strip A, takes a horrible toll on innocent Palestinian civilians that they've abused both directly and indirectly by using them as human shields since the mid-2000s. And B, plays straight into the hands of the Israeli hard right, which have used the presence of Hamas in the Gaza Strip to divide the Palestinians, to undermine the validity of the Palestinian cause, and to ultimately delay or eliminate the possibility of an independent Palestinian state. Destroying Hamas, or at least uprooting them from power in the Gaza Strip, I would argue, is good for everyone in Israel except for hard-right opponents of a Palestinian state and ultimately good forever for Palestinians as well, except for the jihadists, since, again, really the primary victims of Hamas are innocent Palestinians who are, yet again, caught in the crossfire of a round of fighting started by Hamas. So, with that being the case... Yeah, Israel can't allow itself to be deterred from going into the Gaza Strip by Hamas using civilians as human shields. And I don't see what Israel can do except to ask civilians to try to get out of the areas where they're expecting combat. Now, of course, again, on an individual level, it is incredibly unfair to have to leave your home because of a war you as a civilian are not responsible for. And just like in, you know, places like Florida where there's inevitably some person who will not leave despite a hurricane that's coming there are inevitably going to be some civilians who will refuse to move out of the way. But it also says rather a lot about the situation and about Hamas's complete lack of concern for Palestinian civilians, or really, I should say their open desire to hide behind them, that they've been actively attempting to block civilians from leaving the area that Israel asked them to leave. There's pretty open evidence of a great number of civilians trying to evacuate and Hamas having actively blocked them from doing so. Like They blew up one of the escape routes, and there have been... Lots of reports of Hamas confiscating people's car keys and and doing other stuff to try to block people from going. Now, I had hoped when Israel basically said, hey, you have 24 hours to move, that they would not actually stick to that and, like, go in full bore on hour 25. And yeah, that's been borne out. They gave the 24-hour warning thing, like, several days ago and still haven't fully gone in. And I hope they'll keep waiting so that as many civilians as possible can be gotten out of harm's way. Another thing that happened this week... Hamas offered to release hostages they have from countries other than Israel. Obviously, this is good, but a lot of the coverage I've seen of this so far has been, like, weirdly uncritical and has failed to see it as part of a broader information war that Hamas is waging here. Like, it fails to mention the reality that letting non-Israeli hostages go is very much in Hamas's interest in order to cause other countries who have shown solidarity with Israel, probably partly because they've also got people who are kidnapped, to, like, lose interest and move on. As far as I know, nobody has been released yet, and I hope that they are, but yeah, I I thought that was also an interesting tidbit from stuff that's developed in the last week that was worth sharing. So, I've taken a few veiled shots at bad media coverage of the conflict earlier in this episode and in the last one I did on this topic. I had continued to see other small bits of bad coverage throughout the conflict, but nothing that made me really lose my mind besides what I've just mentioned up until now... And then on Wednesday night of this week, many, many very credible, very respected media outlets shit the bed in a way that I really don't know that I've ever seen before. Now, I insist, as I have in a number of episodes of this show lately, journalism is one of the most important and often noble professions known to humanity. I have huge respect for a lot of the press, and I almost always find blanket attacks on the media to be absurd and reductionist, almost always coming from either the nutcase American right trying to work the refs or from conspiracy theorists of other persuasions. But the rush on Wednesday night this week to publish blaring headlines without doing proper vetting of the information behind them will, I fear, have lasting consequences for peace in the Middle East and will probably result in a whole bunch more unnecessary death, mostly of innocent Palestinian civilians. Let me explain. So on Wednesday night, right before President Biden was set to arrive in the Middle East to meet with various leaders who will be critical in one way or another to stopping this conflict, There was an explosion in the parking lot of a big hospital in Gaza. Almost immediately, a whole bunch of mainstream outlets, the New York Times, BBC, CNN, Wall Street Journal, many others, all went up with headlines that were some variation of Israel Bombs Hospital, Hundreds Dead. But then if you read the article, it turns out that their only source for the incredibly inflammatory headline under which they ran the story was, in the BBC's case, I swear to you, unconfirmed reports from Hamas or, in other cases, the Gaza Health Ministry, which is itself completely under the control of Hamas and isn't reliable at all as a source. The New York Times specifically not only ran a headline directly accusing the Israelis of blowing up a hospital, but they ran that headline over a picture of an entirely different destroyed building, one which, by the way, had taken way more damage than we now know was taken by the hospital in question. I'm sure that was an unintentional mistake, but, like, seriously? All these outlets then left these headlines up for hours before then apparently realizing, wait a minute, it's actually a bit irresponsible to level an accusation this inflammatory in a headline without a decent bit of supporting evidence, especially in the age of social media where tons of people will see your headline and never even glance at the actual story. Maybe part of the reason that they left these headlines up for so long was that Israel took a little while to, like, check before officially denying that it had been them, but... I kind of feel like the lack of an immediate denial from the accused party is no excuse for leaving up super-inflammatory headlines making an accusation based on very shaky evidence, especially when the accused party has stated pretty frequently in the past that their policy is to specifically not do the thing that they're being accused of. Now, for the record, I'm completely open to the possibility that Israel was behind this attack, and if they were, whoever was directly responsible for it should be tried in international court for war crimes. But here are just a few things we know right now with the benefit of a bit more time. First, in the hours after the attack, footage started circulating, including on Al Jazeera, which, by the way, was one of the worst offenders in terms of leaving up super inflammatory headlines based on little evidence. Footage uh, started circulating of rockets launched from near the hospital in question, breaking up mid-flight or otherwise failing or stalling in some way and falling, yeah, where it looks like the hospital is. Israel has now released audio of a phone call that they claim to have intercepted between people in Hamas, where those people are discussing the origin of the explosion and then seem to basically figure out that it may well have resulted from a rocket launched not by them, but by their ally, another terrorist organization called Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They specifically mentioned launches from a cemetery located near the hospital. With the benefit of daylight, uh, photos from the area put up on the internet by Palestinians, also UAV, that is to say, drone footage of the area of the explosion. Well, there, there, there are a few things that we can now see in the light of day. One is that the reports of physical damage Wednesday night were pretty clearly overblown. Just about the only structural damage is minor impacts to the roof of one of the buildings nearby, which is... A lot more consistent with something having broken apart in midair with small pieces crashing than a large bomb having been dropped and then exploding on the ground. All the buildings in the area seem largely intact. The hospital itself wasn't hit directly. You can see in the photos, the rather fragile looking solar panels on the roof weren't even knocked over. The explosion was in the parking lot. There are a couple of cars which mostly sustained fire damage, but were not really blown apart or away from the impact crater as would have been the case in a large explosion. Speaking of the impact crater, and I don't mean to minimize the damage that could have been done here, but the crater itself is, wow, well, it's really small. It's like a meter, maybe like three feet across, maybe one or two feet deep, which is not consistent with the kind of ordinance that would usually be dropped in an Israeli airstrike. Like if they have been trying to blow up a target at ground level, the crater would have been like many, many times larger, both in terms of its like width and depth. And if they were trying to hit an underground target with a GBU-28, sorry, like a a Bunker Buster bomb of some kind, then the whole area would have caved in. There would be like a, a very deep crater, which obviously hasn't happened here. All of which is to say that the relatively minor structural damage isn't really consistent with what you'd expect from an IAF airstrike, and looks more like... Well, what you'd expect from a jerry-rigged rocket malfunctioning, crashing, and burning up a bunch of its fuel. Besides the physical, like structural evidence not appearing to support the Israel blows up hospital narrative trumpeted in those initial headlines, a bunch of the initial stories reported, based on what Hamas put out, that almost like 500 people were killed here. Now, I'm sure that innocent people did lose their lives in the explosion, which is horrible, especially since they were sheltering by a hospital, which should always be a safe place. Like, I don't want to minimize the tragedy of that. But the level of damage is well, really not consistent with a scenario in which anywhere near 500 people were killed, which is a really good thing. And Hopefully Hamas was lying about the number of casualties there were, and there are actually way fewer innocent people dead right now than we were led to believe, which should be good news. One last thing about that physical evidence. The day after the explosion, there were apparently like no bomb fragments or shrapnel found, as there usually would be in a situation like this. Now, considering that A, those fragments would almost certainly help prove who caused the explosion, and B, Hamas is in control of the area, and you'd think they'd want to trumpet this further evidence of Israeli aggression if they had it? The disappearance of these specific, important pieces of physical evidence is interesting. Another loose end here around the hospital tragedy, a bunch of people whose politics caused them to want to immediately blame Israel for the explosion pointed to a tweet from somebody Twitter verified named Hananya Naftali, who said something like, "Uh, Israel successfully took out a terrorist target at a hospital tragic, Hamas uses human shields, blah blah blah, something like that. Now, those who were already convinced without evidence that this was Israel jumped all over this tweet. I personally had people who were yelling at me on the internet when I said we maybe shouldn't jump to conclusions yet cite this specific tweet to me as evidence of Israel's guilt. But it turns out, Hanania Naftali is literally just some guy on YouTube. He's me, but way more successful and with different ideological leanings. I mean, to be clear, yes, he did at one point work on Netanyahu's digital team when Netanyahu was out of power. But as far as I'm aware, he does not work for the Israeli government now and certainly doesn't speak for the Israeli military. Finally, last point I'll make on the here's what we actually know now about the explosion that everybody was way too quick to attribute to one side without evidence front. Well, based on everything I just laid out and presumably some other stuff that the public doesn't have access to, President Biden's team increasingly seems to be concluding that Israel, yeah, wasn't behind this. Bottom line, is it possible that Israel was responsible for the attack on the hospital? Yes, I'm totally open to that possibility. Has Israel done other shitty things in the context of this latest fighting in Gaza after the October 7th attacks and in other rounds of violence to the Palestinians in the past? Absolutely. Should Israel be doing more to push for a long-term peace with the Palestinians? Of course, Yes. But when it comes to this specific accusation that the Israelis did this specifically heinous thing of deliberately killing multiple hundreds of innocent civilians seeking shelter in a hospital, well, the evidence to my eyes does seem to be trending in the other direction. And it makes it clear that it was almost unbelievably irresponsible for so many mainstream media outlets Wednesday night to have run headlines stating as fact that Israel had killed like 500 people by blowing up a hospital here are just a few things that we already know resulted from these headlines. First of all, massive protests were sparked all over the Middle East. These are going to result in people probably dying in some of these protests, either because they'll get out of hand and a protester will die, or because they could, like, breach an Israeli embassy and kill people inside of it. There are already reports in Muslim-majority countries where Israel has diplomatic relations that they're maybe going to pull out their consulates over safety concerns. I should mention that the terrorist group Hezbollah has called for, like, A day of rage against the Zionist entity or something. Oh, another one? Which, although I roll my eyes at it, could definitely result in violence, which is also, by the way, escalating in the occupied West Bank. The premature headlines almost certainly gave cover to Jordanian King Abdullah and Egyptian President, Prime Minister, Admiral, Generalissimo, Pharaoh, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, not to mention the next to useless Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, to pull out of meetings that they had scheduled with Biden while he was in the region, which is very bad. Those leaders are also now, at least to some degree, backed into a corner because they and others like the Turkish president and various others made very strong statements based on those initial reports from the attack which will now be really hard for them to walk back now that their own people are all inflamed about it. And this obviously jeopardizes the critical role of several of these leaders as potential peacekeepers or mediators here once Israel destroys Hamas and then needs to reach some sort of agreement with the Palestinians. I said in episode 54 that to my mind, the only path toward any sort of realistic peace deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians probably runs through the involvement of other Arab countries who are no longer openly hostile to Israel and still have some credibility with the Palestinians. Given the current situation, a situation that was made way worse by the fact that a whole bunch of major outlets took the Hamas version of events hook, line, and sinker, and have, as far as I know, not yet taken responsibility, published retractions, or in any way acknowledged that they fucked up, but rather just quietly changed the online version of their headlines, yeah. Given that situation, and what I mentioned earlier about the Saudis basically chickening out of their own negotiations with Israel... It's a lot harder for me to imagine other Arab leaders doing anything actually constructive to help here anytime soon. The leaders of most Arab countries have after all spent decades dangling the plight of the Palestinians in front of their own citizens whenever they need to redirect their people's anger over their own governments incompetence away from their leaders and outward toward the Israelis. But then despite paying lip service to the Palestinian cause they've rarely done anything at all to actually help individual Palestinians but rather facilitate the myth that someday Israel might simply disappear, so you know why bother looking for actual solutions? In that proud tradition of political cowardice, the King of Jordan said the other day that no Palestinian refugees should end up either in Jordan or in Egypt. The President of Egypt suggested that Gazan refugees should be housed in the Negev Desert in Israel, which is not really a serious suggestion for a number of reasons. And despite his expressed deep concern for the Palestinians, He won't let anyone from Gaza into Egypt, and the U.S. had to twist his arm to even get him to allow humanitarian aid workers into Gaza via the Egyptian border. Actually, one update here Thursday when I'm recording this, it was announced earlier that Biden has convinced Sisi, the president of Egypt, to allow the Rafah border crossing between Egypt and Gaza to open on Friday. Now, I'm not sure what the scale of this is, if they're just going to allow dual nationals out or if it'll be something bigger. But as far as I know, more broadly, no single Arab country has offered to take any refugees that may be the result of this latest round of fighting set off by Hamas. Bottom line, the Israel bombed a hospital narrative, which received a massive boost from the biggest collective media fuck-up since the 2016 Hillary email scandal or maybe even the drumbeat leading up to the Iraq war, That narrative will almost certainly, for a number of reasons I've outlined here, fuel a desire on the Arab street more broadly, and among Palestinians specifically, to just keep on fighting, spurred on by both the idea that the Israelis are monsters who deliberately hit a hospital, and the now almost inevitable repeat of the leaders of other Arab countries failing to push for an actual realistic peace. Meaning that this conflict will continue in basically a vicious stalemate. Just to again sort of boil down the nature of that stalemate, in case anybody didn't catch this part of episode 54, I want to again reference the metaphor laid out on Twitter by Pakistani-Canadian physician Ali Rizvi, the author of The Atheist Muslim. Here's how he put it. You're a kid in school and another kid with a legitimate grievance against your grandparents that wasn't your fault or his is coming at you to beat you up. You managed to subdue him. You're sitting on top of him now, your hands pinning his wrist to the ground. Let me go, he says. I don't want to fight, you say. If I let you go, do you promise not to hit me? But he's silent. If you let him go, he punches you out. But if you don't let him go, you're a bully forcing yourself on this younger, poorer kid. It's hopelessly deadlocked. This, where we are now, this is pointless. To again quote Ali, It's been 75 years, and several generations of people have been born in this land on both sides. You may have your opinion about the mistakes their grandparents and great-grandparents made, but none of the people who live there today have any other place to call home. Look, inflaming tensions here will delay any sort of ultimate resolution of the broader conflict or end to the immediate round of fighting in the short term, meaning that more people will die, most of them innocent Palestinian civilians. I'll just wrap up the Middle East part of this episode by saying the leaders of Israel need to be going way above and beyond the call of duty right now to not harm civilians. The leaders of neighboring Arab countries who claim to be supportive of Palestinians need to be doing a lot more to push for a constructive peace rather than just demagoguing the conflict for the edification of their local populations. And the press, journalists, headline writers, they got one of the most important jobs in the world right now. They've got to do better. Speaking of chaos, hell of a transition there. With things spinning out of control in the Middle East due largely to the actions of violent theocrats, the Republican Party this week took a stab at elevating a lunatic theocrat of their own to the highest elected office available to their party right now. Yes, with America's strongest ally in the Middle East facing the biggest threat to its security in over half a century, another American ally in Europe still under existential threat from one of America's two primary geostrategic antagonists, the American government due again to shut down in like a month because we haven't agreed on a budget... The Republican Party has failed for almost two weeks now to pick anyone to be Speaker of the House after a few of their looniest members defenestrated Trump stooge Kevin McCarthy for not being Trump stoogy enough. They've chewed up and spit out Steve Scalise, and the new flavor of the week would really seriously appear to be Jim Jordan, spelled G-Y-M, who, it can't be said enough, is not normal. Jim Jordan has been described by the former Republican Speaker of the House and fellow Ohio Representative John Boehner as, and I quote, a legislative terrorist. I made the sort of jokey, violent theocrat comment a minute ago partially in jest, but... Well, Former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger has said in public a number of times that Jim Jordan is a straight-up Christian nationalist who legitimately believes that he's fighting dark forces. The Democrats are like Satan's spawn, and defeating them in any way possible is more important than upholding American democracy. Speaking of the basic working of democracy, in like a decade and a half in the House, I don't think Jim Jordan has gotten a single piece of legislation passed, which is kind of like the first job of a House speaker. He's also, like right now, actively in contempt of Congress because he refused to testify before the House January 6th committee, which issued him a lawful subpoena to do so. And why would that committee have asked for testimony from Jim Jordan? Well, that would be because he was more smack in the middle of the machinations around the January 6th insurrection and the general attempt by Trump and his goons to overthrow the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential elections than perhaps any other member of Congress, to the point where Jordan apparently asked Trump's people to preemptively issue him a presidential pardon. Now, just to be clear, the only reason to, like, want a pardon and ask for a pardon is because you think you probably committed a crime. There's a lot more that could be said about Jim Jordan. I could go into the fact that it's widely believed that he covered up widespread sexual abuse of student-athletes when he was an assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State back in the day, for example, that's why spells named G-Y-M. Which, to be fair, I guess sets him one level better than former Republican Speaker of the House, Dennis Hastert, who diddled kids personally. I could also mention that if Jim Jordan became the Speaker of the House, America should be actively worried that he will make serious moves after the 2024 election to do what the House Republicans failed to do in 2020, of basically trying to rig the certification process to just give Donald Trump a presidency even if he loses. In any case, just to look at one thing around Jordan's bid for the Speakership, it appears that about 20 Republicans, who have up until now been able to countenance a whole lot of crazy on behalf of their party, have finally decided to draw a line at making this man third in line to the presidency. Which is, of course, leading to more hilarious scenes like we saw in January, in which all 212 Democrats walk out onto the floor and vote for Hakeem Jeffries to be the Speaker, and then a number of Republicans go out and vote for, like, randos in their caucus or other people who've retired or something. But unlike last January, when most of the holdouts were extreme-right lunatics along the lines of Jordan himself, this time the holdouts are largely the less crazy Republicans. Also unlike January, as far as I'm aware, and quite predictably at this point, realistically I would say, given the nature of the American far-right, a bunch of those holdouts are reporting that they, their staff, and sometimes even their families are receiving death threats and harassment and pressure to get behind Jordan, including from high-profile extreme-right media figures like Fox's Sean Hannity. Now, this says a lot about A, as I say, like the mortal character, or lack thereof really, in the far right in America, and B, the extent to which the Republican Party at this point is in a lot of ways just sort of a reflection of their crazy media figures rather than voters themselves, meaning that C, they're a group of people whose first, second, and third priorities are to engage in a crazy off to entertain Fox viewers and then to raise money from online donations. Governing responsibly doesn't make the top 10. Which brings me back to my point about chaos. The American government is not really able to do anything right now with much of the world on fire and our own country hurtling toward another government shutdown in like a month. In most modern democracies, you probably wouldn't see a situation where one party has the executive and the upper legislative chamber, but another party in one chamber of the legislature with a tiny, seriously, four-seat majority in a house of 435 members can just derail the whole enterprise. I've heard people say, America is a Ferrari. How can you treat it this way? No. I mean, the country? Yeah, maybe. But with our almost uniquely structurally flawed form of governance when compared to other modern democracies, America's government, at least, is more like an aging Toyota Tercel designed specifically for driver's ed, so that the driver and the passenger seat both have their own steering wheel and brake. And if you let today's banana Republicans have even one seat in the car, they will suddenly and without warning jerk the steering wheel and spin the car into the wrong lane right when there's a ton of oncoming traffic. I keep hinting at the idea that this wouldn't be happening in most other modern democracies. Let me clarify what I mean. In most other countries with a parliamentary system, which, to be clear, America does not have, but our legislators more and more act within their parties as though we did, in most other modern democracies, in a situation where there's a divide this narrow between two major political blocks, probably you'd be seeing a situation wherein a coalition would be formed of a block cobbled together of those closest to the center, They'd pick some sort of consensus leader, work out a power-sharing agreement where they, like, trade off committee chairmanships or something. But instead, we see one party with a hairline majority, ironically the party that is way more in disarray at the moment, basically putting up more and more and more radical candidates to be Speaker of the House. First, Kevin McCarthy, the soulless hack who would cater to whatever the extremists wanted, then Steve Scalise, the self-described David Duke without the baggage, Then they moved on to Jim fucking Jordan, who is basically like if Marjorie Taylor Greene learned to read and somehow had an even more shrill voice. But it looks like he's gonna flame out, too. And literally, who's left that's crazier for them to pick than Jim Jordan? Quick update to just slip in here. Earlier today, they announced that Jim Jordan, after several failed votes, is gonna give up on being Speaker for now. And is going to get behind the idea of giving Patrick McHenry, the guy who's been like the the symbolic sort of powerless speaker in the short term, at least some actual powers through January. But then Jim Jordan changed his mind and wants to try again, so... I mean, as much as I've been sort of laughing here watching the Republicans prove day after day after day that they do not have their shit together and are not ready to govern, and as much as I'm also metaphorically stroking my mustache and rubbing my hands together while giggling at the predicament this creates for Republicans in districts that Biden won, who we now may probably have a much easier time beating in 2024 and thus taking back the House, we don't have time for this right now. It's time for some number of the few remaining responsible-ish Republicans to come to the Democrats, make a deal, and pick some consensus candidate to run the House of Representatives. I mean, for comparison, look at Israel. Israel spent much of this year in massive turmoil, with like a quarter of their population out protesting as the extreme-right, authoritarian, like borderline fascist administration under Netanyahu set about trying to shred Israeli democracy. But then in the face of this crisis Israel's up against now, Even Benjamin Netanyahu, who I've described before as one of the single worst people in elected politics anywhere in the world, and I stand by that, even he had the common sense to at least temporarily get rid of his nutcase extreme right coalition and quickly form a unity government with a bunch of his main political opponents being brought into the administration. If Benjamin Netanyahu can do that, can't five Republicans out of the 221 currently in the House do so as well? Guess it remains to be seen. That's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you like the show and want to make sure not to miss the next episode, be sure to follow on whatever platform you listen or send me an email at OKTalksPodcast at gmail.com and I'll throw you on that email list. Also, please do feel free to reach out if you have any ideas for the show, topics you want me to cover, somebody you think I should have on. I really, as I said last week, I really did appreciate getting some questions that directed the last episode that I did on the Middle East. Can't promise I'll always be able to answer very quickly, but I'm serious. I'd love to hear from you. OKTalksPodcast at gmail.com. As always, if you really want to do me a solid, please do go ahead and share the show with anybody you think might get something out of it. To anybody who already has, thank you. To anybody who will, thanks in advance. Thanks as always to Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork and to everyone else for listening.